Conserving native species and landscapes is one of the biggest challenges scientists face in our future. But what does conservation actually mean? I'm Tegan Taylor and this is Occam's Razor, a soapbox for science. This week, we're hearing from Graham Webb, who's been working with crocodile populations for decades. He's been pondering the big conservation question and says part of the challenge we face is understanding what we mean by the word itself. You know, conservation means different things to different people. And for me personally, it's been something of a journey to try and understand just what it does mean. And I, I can remember sitting in Manangrida about 1974, talking to an industrialist that from Sydney who had some rural land. He was talking about kangaroos, red and grey kangaroos. And he, he was saying where he was from, that they, they used to be everywhere and they're gone. And, and I always thought this was odd because I said, well, where I come from, you know, farmers control them when they get a bit numerical, but there's just as many now as there ever was. And so I said, where did you come from? He says, Condoblin in New South Wales. I said, well, that's strange because that's where I come from too. The lesson was that people can be be in the same place and see things very differently. So a lot of the politics that goes on in, in conservation is not evilly motivated, it's just people just see things completely differently. Like in my background, I, I grew up in a country area and as a kid, as kids did in the 1950s, everybody hunted things all the time. It was like your only recreation. And I had a grandmother who came from a pretty famous fishing family of generations and she used to cook everything I came home with. And I just thought that that's the way everybody operated, but they obviously didn't. And so when I went to university in the 60s, uh, that's when I first started to hear the word conservation and people were talking about mainly with kangaroos. And I used to think, well, that's a bit odd. Even at that time... I used to ponder the alarmist type approach that was being used, being pioneered in those days. Anyway, in my personal story, I went to the University of New England to do agriculture and then I discovered that you could do zoology and I always thought working on animals was something you had to do like as a hobby or after hours or on the weekends. When I realised you could do it as a profession, I couldn't believe it. I thought, well, this is for me. This is what I'm going to do. I got involved with uh, some tremendous mentors there that took me under their wing and put up with me. And they were experts in, in reptiles in particular. So I, in, in my, I, I, did, I did all my degrees there till I came out with a PhD, but I did a huge amount of travel. I took any opportunity to go anywhere and work on things, I, you know, locked myself in to go to some island on some four-month expedition thinking it was up in the Barrier Reef and then got letters for an Antarctic division and I went down to Macquarie Island for four months working on seals and penguins. It didn't worry me. The, the more experience I could get, the better. So when a program started up here on um, saltwater crocodiles by the University of Sydney, Professor Harry Messel, I came up as really the first full-time biologist because I, 
I was rural, I could work in the field, I didn't didn't need the yellow pages every time something went wrong and and I was fascinated by reptiles and I'd already worked out that you couldn't work on crocodiles unless you had tremendous logistic support. 1977, I'd amassed a lot of stuff. I was starting to get a bit disenchanted with Harry over a few things. And then I came up to the Territory working as a consultant with the Northern Territory Government. There was no university up here then. So I worked through various establishments down south as a consultant and then worked on freshwater crocodiles. So by the end of the start of the 1980s, I was one of the few people in the world that had experienced it two completely different types of crocodiles and, and mainly uh, the basic research, the, the, the natural history and the population dynamics at a time when CITES had come into force and there was a global interest in crocodiles around the world. So it put me in a unique position. But where things started to change very dramatically is in the north the saltwater crocodile population was recovering and it was obvious to everybody because when you when you survey crocodiles, you can see the hatchlings, the one-year-olds, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six. So you can see what's happening. And we're at the stage where we're getting lots of two- and three-metre animals. The public was seeing more crocs than they'd seen before. We suddenly had two people killed by crocs, two people badly mauled by crocs, and then just when the new government was trying to promote tourism and fishing expeditions, sweethearts started tipping fishing boats over. and Crocodiles just became, you know, like how, how many are you going to have? And so you had to sit down and work out how do you manage a, a giant predator like them, and they're a serious predator, how do you, you get the public to accept them in the future or are you going to keep them restricted to national parks and so the only model that i could see at the time and i wasn't convinced that would work was the model from louisiana where landowners were allowed to sustainably use some of the population so they had commercial incentives to to manage the population so you know the territory put this forward as a as a proposal well did that cause problems? You know, suddenly we found massive academic backlash because people studying crocodiles were being funded on the basis of the endangered species label. And one of the biggest problems with that worldwide is those same scientists should be the first ones to say, yes, success, they're no longer endangered. But what that means is your funding gets chopped off. So. Everybody was, was very politically tough. We had to work not just locally, we had to work nationally, internationally, but I, and our science had to be right and we had heaps and heaps and heaps of it. So it eventually went to the CITES Forum, the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species, and we, we got unanimous support so that we could go ahead with a ranching program that was about collecting wild eggs. Now, the rest is history, that program, and the population of saltwater crocodiles has recovered almost completely as far as we can work out. There's still the average size is getting bigger. The public, by and large, uh, puts up with the crocs. They're generating there at the base of an industry that's worth something like $100 million a year. A lot of that money flows back to traditional Aboriginal people that, that have every right to 
benefit from uh, the resources on their lands. Seen globally is quite a success story because it, it generates all sorts of benefits. But for me personally, it brought me into the area of trying to understand why there was so much controversy and what was conservation about. And I remember being stuck in an airport in Malaysia for 11 hours and I put the whole time into thinking, what is conservation all about? And for me, wildlife conservation was basically about positive values to the community. So that meant in, if you wanted to help the population to conserve things, you had to promote positive values and get rid of negative values, which is what we've done. Now, unfortunately, in the, in the world today, people they see conservation as an umbrella under which there's real conservation, there's animal welfare and there's animal rights. This is really a battle going into the future. We've got a, a, a very strange situation now. I think the world's about 60% urban now and the, the political power is in the cities and people uh, living in you know, two-bedroom units on the 14th floor of some building in the middle of Sydney, their view of animals, which is great, is more related to their their view of their domestic animals, their, their pets and their companion animals. And they, they don't necessarily understand that there's still billions of people in the world that are uh, surviving through using wildlife. And there's very legitimate claims to make sure you don't interfere with that too much. We now suspect that something like 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity is on Indigenous lands and local communities. And so the whole focus of conservation is starting to shift over to those lands and that means we've got to rethink the sort of fortress conservation, these ideas of putting big national parks in the areas. It ha happens all around the world and excluding all the people who lived in those lands traditionally. So the world the world is changing very much in, in the way it's um, trying to sort out these priorities. But there is a, a huge difficulty with very well-meaning people, especially animal rights type activists that are just ideologically opposed to the use of animals by people. So I guess this is going to be the future. We're going to see all sorts of uh, controversy about cons wildlife conservation and the way it links with people. Science is our strongest problem-solving device and has a massive role to play in wildlife conservation, but politics will remain a, a, a bigger and bigger and bigger field. Thank you. That was Professor Graham Webb crocodile and conservation expert speaking there at our Occam's Razor live event at Darwin Railway Club on Larrakia Country in July. I'm Tegan Taylor, your Occam's Razor host, and I'll be swimming up through the muddy waters of your podcast feed with another Scientist Insights next week. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.